This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. As the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic continues, Australia has so far avoided the catastrophic spread of the virus seen overseas, largely due to strict social distancing, travel restrictions and a nationwide shutdown of non-essential services. However, the serious threat the virus poses to remote Indigenous communities remains a concern, with inadequate health care, staffing shortages and overcrowded housing. To provide an update on the situation, I'm joined by CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Pat Turner. Arnie Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out and thanks for your time. You've continued to be at the front line during this crisis, but last time we spoke to you, you weren't doing so well health-wise. Have you picked up? I'm doing fine now, thank you. I'm still on medication, but that's good. I'm self-isolating and working from home. What impact has the virus been having on remote Indigenous communities so far? Well, uh, marked in terms of the influx of people being sent back from regional centres to communities where we've already got overcrowded housing and, you know, the lack of facilities generally in Aboriginal communities makes it very difficult to cater for a further influx of family coming back from the town, like Alice Springs or Tennant Creek or Kununurra or Broome. I mean, it just makes it hard for the smaller communities to accommodate those people. So the houses are even more overcrowded. Where you might have had 10 people, you've now got 15 or 20 sharing a three-bedroom house. So you can imagine the impact of that on the health hardware in the house which generally isn't very good anyway, but with more people, very little maintenance occurring. You know, there may be some essential workers, but you can imagine how difficult it is. One of the big issues that's arisen is food security to remote communities. So it's just incredible that it's taking too long, in my opinion, to sort that out. And the reliance on Woolworths and Coles, I would have thought that there were other grocery and food suppliers that could be used more innovatively and probably at a better price. But nevertheless, thank God I'm not responsible for food security, but NIAA is, and they are working with the Outback Stores and other organisations like the Arnhem Land Progress Association that does a lot of food security in the top end of the Northern Territory. And land councils, of course, have made their voices very well heard during this because you know, they represent many of the landowners in those remote areas. So it's been a bit of a debacle in my view and it should have been planned much better and way ahead of waiting for that to become an issue. It should have been in the planning. A National Indigenous Advisory Committee has been established to help give advice around these issues. How is the work of that committee going and are there recommendations being picked up? Well, they've published a plan, which is very important, and recommendations are being worked through on that. The wheels of bureaucracy move very slowly. I was told almost two weeks ago that the Army were out there consulting in remote areas about logistics, uh, say South Australia, for example, for the APY lands. And I understand that some discussions have been held, but I haven't seen any action on the ground yet. I'm hoping that that's just occurring but I don't know what the nature of that is. And I haven't seen much visibility of where else the Army is engaging with our remote communities and our services in those areas to provide additional assistance with, say, tents for isolation facilities and so on. In those remote areas, because we have such limited facilities, 
and we're in lockdown and for very good reasons in terms of preventing this virus getting into our communities. The clinics can't operate as normal, so they need to do a lot of assessment outside the clinic with the right protective gear, especially testing for COVID-19. And then if someone has suspect symptoms, they have to be isolated and there has to be a facility available that's appropriate for them while they're waiting test results and they've got the symptoms. And then there are those who may test positive, who will test positive, who do have to be in another isolation facility to enable the treatment to happen. So we're not just talking about one facility. We need at least three other isolation facilities per community. And this is going to become even more urgent when COVID gets in, which it will if the restrictions are lifted too early in Australia. Only Pat, you've obviously been looking at the remote areas with particular concern for very good reason. Aboriginal people around the country, Torres Strait Islander people around the country, are in a high-risk area. And I was wondering what sort of issues are being raised about our mob who are living in regional areas or yeah. in the urban areas. Yeah. Well, I'm equally concerned. I don't care where any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person lives. They are all valuable and they all have to have the right level of healthcare at this time. So because we've got so many people with comorbidities or chronic diseases, and one person can have more than one chronic disease at any given time, and you know there's just such a high prevalence of this in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, no matter where they live, Larissa, whether they live in the city, or whether they live in a large regional town or whether they live in a discrete Aboriginal community, doesn't matter. Every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person is vulnerable in this situation. So I wrote to all of our member services this week about continuity of care, especially for vulnerable patients that are on our books, to make sure that we're not neglecting them. And children... Now, children who get sick, not from COVID, but from any illness, can go downhill very rapidly and they have to have ready access to our primary health care services. So I'm getting reports in daily to let me see, you know, exactly what is happening because we've been forced in many cases to move to telehealth. And my concern is that you can't take blood pressure over the phone and the monitoring of chronic health conditions. I'm pleased to say so far with the reports that I've received is continuing with outreach services in many cases where our doctors and nursing and Aboriginal health practitioners are going into the home of these vulnerable patients and making sure that their treatment is kept up to date. So I'm very proud of the work that the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services are doing. They're just phenomenal with their very limited resources. So to date, the only direct funding that has come from the Commonwealth into our services to cope with COVID is around $15 million extra. And, you know, most of that has been channeled to remote because of the extraordinary dangers of COVID getting into a population and devastating it. But we need much more financial assistance from the government to 
cover our staffing no matter where our service is because you can see with the general population that frontline staff are going down with COVID because of the contact. And if that happens in our services, we have to have the capacity to replace them. Going into remote areas, we need them to self-isolate. If they're coming from outside the biosecurity isolated zones, they must be properly self-isolated for two weeks and cleared of any medical danger before they can go into a community. And they have to self-isolate coming out. Now, that's money. You know, you have to pay people while that's happening. You can't just expect them to sit in an isolated facility for two weeks waiting to be cleared health-wise themselves and then go into a remote community. And you must do this. This must be happening everywhere. And I think that there's an attitude in government that we'll just carry this as a part of our existing services. Well, it's not a part of our existing services. And we need to get the money to supplement our workforce. So we estimate that that's around $50 million in additional funds that we require. And, you know, I could go on and on about the things that are needed. And this week, Commonwealth Ministers announced the rolling out of 83 rapid testing equipment, which is excellent, but I want it for every single Aboriginal medical service in this country. Every single medical service has got to have it. The majority of cases that we have on our hands have been in large regional towns or in the cities. I think most of the positive cases are city-based and our health services need that rapid testing facility. Now, these are special machines that some of our services already had because they can test for other illnesses and they are valuable machines to have. There's a new cartridge that's been developed in conjunction and the Kirby Institute's been working with our contacts in this area, Professor James Ward and, and others in the Archo sector, and they have been absolutely exemplary. I must, you know, I'm just so full of praise for the Kirby Institute on this and so grateful. But 83 machines is far from what is required. But the value of these machines is you can get a test result within 45 minutes, which we have it right there in the community, providing that you've got the training to do the testing and you've got all the protective gear for our staff to use and the proper facility to do the testing in. And just because our communities aren't highly visible in the Australian community doesn't mean that it's not important that our people have access to the testing regime and we need it now, not tomorrow, not two weeks' time. We have been talking to the government about these 83 machines for several weeks and I hope that the distribution will be direct and that where we have respiratory clinics already established, like IUE has opened in Kabulche this week, our health service in the southeast Queensland region, that they will get the testing machines there at the same time. 
Arnie, Pat, you've had a really long history of working in the public service at very senior levels. In fact, at times you've been the highest ranked Indigenous public servant. And now you're working at the coalface with the community controlled organisations. You've been a strong advocate around the need for partnership between government and the community controlled sector. And I'm wondering if given your enormous expertise in this area, you could talk really specifically about what you're seeing in the health area now that really backs up what the evidence is showing about the need for community-controlled organisations to be taking the lead in an area like health during a crisis like this? Oh, well, you know, yes, absolutely. It's just been unbelievable. Now, we do have a good partnership with the Commonwealth Department of Health, but we're dealing primarily with the bureaucrats who themselves been excellent. I can't fault them. But what I can fault is the decisions taken higher up by the government to allocate the resources that we've asked for. And I'm not happy that it takes so long for ministers to respond. We've laid our case out very clearly. Now, the good thing is that when NACHO put in the national position paper to get the designated isolated zones in remote, that was acted upon very promptly because it was just common sense, as clear as crystal, and we sent it directly to the national cabinet members, the prime minister, premiers and chief ministers themselves. And we had a decision very quickly. You know, of course, it takes time to get the legislation right. But the fact of the matter is the biosecurity legislation was used and the isolated zones are in place. There's been a few teething problems with the poorest borders. And now I'm thinking, oh, well, they can just drive up the road and outside their designated zone. Well, you know, we've made it clear that you can't do that. Please don't do that. You're not only endangering yourselves, but you're endangering the community you're going into and going back to. So just be a bit patient and try to keep yourselves happy at home. And there's a few other issues like the food security matters and things like that, which is still a very major concern. So given the fact that we've had outback stores for a long time and so on, I'm just really disappointed that the pre-planning wasn't done to ensure ready access to healthy and affordable food. You know, these shops are still charging $15 for a bloody cauliflower. And it's ridiculous. I mean, our people need access to fresh produce and they need now more than ever healthy food to keep their immunity system up to fight off. And now we're leading into the flu season. So our services are doing everything they can so that every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person who has access to our services are now getting their flu uh, vaccines. And it is most important for any other Aboriginal people who don't live close to a health service or don't use one of our health services to make sure that if they haven't bothered about flu vaccines before, that they certainly bother about it this year. Anyone from six months old right through must have the flu vaccine because if you don't and we get the double whammy of COVID and flu, we will lose many more lives than we are able to prevent if people do the right thing and everyone gets the flu vaccine. For those over 60, they should also be getting the pneumococcal vaccine at the same time. Now, it knocks you around a bit, but it's better to have the vaccines than not to have them. So please, I'm begging everyone to do that. Our services are doing their best. 
We've got problems with supply, which I've raised with the department this week, and ask them to sort that out as a high priority. And they are onto it, so that's good. Arnie, Pat, just finally this evening, it's been a challenging time for all of us and you've given a lot of really great advice on what governments and the sector should be doing. But I was wondering, on a personal level, do you have advice for those out there who are struggling with being in isolation? How are you coping with it and what's your advice? This is the time to be patient, kind and think of how you can do things to make it easier for all of you in isolation. So phone calls to family on a regular basis, listening to the radio, you know, don't sit there like a couch potato just watching TV all day and night. But at night, I must say, I turn off the phone as much as I can. Healthline for people who are feeling really depressed, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Headspace, all of these things. And our services have got the connection for people to get counselling if they need it because we're very aware of the multiple pressures that our people are under and whereby they might need just to talk to a counsellor and, you know, the services are certainly out there. But most of the support, as usual, comes from within the family and it's a matter of everybody trying to use these times to do, as my chair says, long-distance yarning around the home, practising social distancing. But, you know, when we all get together and we have a big yarn up and we can laugh and whatever, we have to do that. Arnie, Pat, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out tonight. My pleasure. Thank you, Larissa. Arnie Pat Turner is the CEO of the National Community Controlled Health Organisation, or NACHO.